Well, welcome to your second class. And while I know that the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure, uh, I got you for another hour, and we almost need to pray for that dynamic because I know oh, it's already getting packed in there. Um, we're just going to pack some more. Uh, but before we do that, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this time together. We just thank you for the blessing of being your people, for the blessing of following Jesus. We thank you for the wonder of your grace, the extent of your love, for all that you've done for us in Christ. And Lord, we know that you've called us to follow you. And that is so simple, yet so profound and so difficult, and we so struggle with it. Lord, we just continue to pray that you would grant us clarity and understanding that you would take our weak faith, our unbelief, and that you would strengthen it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I thought we'd begin by uh, sharing with you a word or two about who I am. My First of all, my name is Rick Schaefer. And this is my second year here. I was here last year. I was a counselor. Some of, I had some of you. Um, I, was to, I was with Toby and... Now, this is my second year. I get to sleep a little bit more this year because I'm not a counselor and I'm a speaker, and that rocks. Um, I'm down with that. Um, so I was like, oh, this is good. But I, I have to say, I left so exhausted last year. I don't remember being so personally, emotionally, spiritually spent in a while. And I have that experience all the time. It was a great time being here last year. But I'm excited about the things that we get to talk about uh, this week. I just to let you know where I come from and sort of my story and how I got here. Um, four years, a little over four years ago, I went to Long Beach, California. How many of you know where that is? It's where the Queen Mary is. If you don't know where Long Beach is, you might know where the Queen Mary is. Although I don't expect it because nobody goes on that boat anymore. It just sits there. Um, but anyhow, we live across the water from the Queen Mary. That's where we are. Uh, we have a church that we planted there four years ago. And it's a ch church made up of 120 to 140 hipsters. Uh, now, who here, now I know I got Sam in the room, which doesn't even count, but who here knows what a hipster is? <laughs> Please, some of you, okay, tell us something about a hipster. Start with Billy there. Uh, usually, they typically uh, have long hair. Are you talking hippies? Like these? No, not hippies. They're hipsters. Yeah, this is a different animal. Start with Garrett. Okay. They have like really long v necks, right? Long v necks. That's good. That's good. My son, my kids are sort of hipsters, you know? So they borrow from the hippie. They do sort of borrow from the hippie culture, Josh. Modern hippies. They ride fixed gears and they don't conform to anything. They don't. They ride fixed gear bikes. That is such a big deal. They don't conform. They ride fixies in long pants. Yes. And girls' shoes. Actually, the girls' pants too. They're actually, girls' pants. Girls' pants cut. And you know what? I'm sorry to interrupt. But uh, was that Joe? Josh. Josh. Bro, they conform. They do. Conform. Well, now, they do. They now they're actually the prevailing culture. Yeah, yeah they've actually, yeah. That's a whole other philosophical yeah. conversation. 
So we're learning. So tell me some more about hipsters. They love irony. Irony, yeah. They drink PBR for the irony. They what? They drink what? PBR, pass the river. Oh man, you are insightful. <laughs> the first beer ever bought for me was a Paps. First one. Free trade cop or fair trade cop. Yes. Oh man, we got some insightful people here. What's that? Ending music. That's such a big thing. Most hipsters, if they're not artists, they like to think that they're artists. Um, but my church is actually full of musicians and full of artists, and we actually have some very renowned artists in our church, some actually very capable people that now uh, go to our church. Actually, some of them who have played in bands, many of you have probably heard of from like the Yeah Yeahs to uh, Beck. Beck. Uh, uh, anyhow, uh, we have Delta Spirit in our church. Uh, we only have a part of them now. The band split up. Um, anyhow, some others. but. That's, I have a church of hipsters, and uh, I love it. To be honest, I love it. These other things I would tell you about hipsters, many of the hipsters that I have in my church are people in their late 20s and their early 30s, mostly late 20s, who at one point were in the church, became burnt out on the church, became very cynical of Christianity, uh, the worldview of Christianity, and who are yet into some kind of spirituality that has cynicism all the way through it, Somehow they've found their way to our church, and I'm the pastor of a church of a bunch of people like that. And you know what? Honestly, for the first two years, uh, it was rough, but I love it. I wouldn't do anything else. The other thing I would tell you about that culture is they're extremely honest, tend to be straightforward, they sort of live life where they're at. So I went, we've been there for four years. We went to plant a church where the gospel was not to take the gospel to a bunch of people who would never find their way into the church. And that's who we went, uh, went for. One of the things that makes our church sort of unique is that mo I could probably walk to 90% of the people who attend our church from my house. Most of my church is in a two-mile radius. And that's just an odd experience in my life. I've never known anything other than a regional church. You've got to get in a car to go to somebody's house. I have a, we've had small groups on every other block at one point uh, in, our, uh, in our neighborhood. And that's a phenomenal experience. I go out and I run into people all the time. So that's sort of my story. I, uh, I come to you sort of from Long Beach and from that ministry. Um, but I also wanted to share just some of my own story um, because that's really going to inform a lot of what we talk about as we talk about what does it mean to be stained. And let me tell you what I want to do over the next three days. Uh, I guess it's four days if we skip Tuesday. So it's today, Wednesday, and Thursday. Today I want to talk about what does it mean to be stained, because even though this is the theme, I think it's a really an elusive term. I think it's hard to get our minds around, and we're going to focus some attention on that today. Tomorrow we're going to take it in a different direction. Actually, not tomorrow, Wednesday. And we're going to talk about being God's people in the world. And the way that that stains us, even as God's people doing God's work, and what that ought to move us, the, the way that that sort of compels us to live. So we're going to talk about doing ministry as God's people and the way that that will stain you. Um, and then the third day, which would be Thursday, we're going to leave this classroom open. So what I'm sort of hoping is that through the things that are said today, 
the things that are said in the evening class or the other class or any things that are being said here, even that are coming up in your group, really what I hope is that things would be boiling to the surface, that you would start having some questions and some issues that we need to grapple with, that you would be able to write those down on a piece of paper and put those, I guess John has a box somewhere, that you could put those in the box, you could hand them to me, and we're going to spend some time in this group, in this class, going over some of those issues and questions, whatever they might be. And let me say something about that before you, about that. If the Psalms teach us anything, the Psalms teach us to risk openness and honesty with God. And one of the things I really want to challenge you to do this week is to risk some openness and some honesty about where you are, about your faith, about what God is doing in your life or not doing. And that really gets into my story and sort of how I got here. Uh, when I was 20 years old, not all that long ago, uh, I was a youth pastor in a city called Temecula, which is inland San Diego County, uh, no place you probably want to live. But I was a youth pastor there, um, and we had planted a church, and I was doing youth work. That church grew, it exploded, actually, it's now it's like 5,000 people, not when I was there. Um, but our youth group grew, and we had, I used to put everybody in my truck before the seatbelt laws, and we would go to the beach, and we'd hang out, I had a little Toyota truck, and we had 15 people in my truck. Um, that was highly illegal, it was stupid back then. Um, but in the course of the year, the ministry grew, we had like 50 kids, and I quickly realized I didn't know what I was doing, so I went off to seminary. I saw a book by a guy I'd never heard of called Lectures to My Students by C.H. Spurgeon. I read it, he, he quickly told me, Rick, you don't know what you're doing go to school. So I went off to seminary in Portland after getting married and went to school up there for a year and a half. We had two sets of twins. They're all here. One of them's in this room. There's one, Josh. Uh, he has a twin, Joseph, many of you know, and then David and Daniel, and they're the other one. They're the older set. They're going to be, Josh is a junior, David and Daniel are seniors, and Joseph's a junior. Uh, had, and at that point in my life, I went into a crisis. I was 23 years old, and I went into the, sort of a, a deep crisis of faith. And the reason that happened in my life is I started reading biographies. I love to read biographies. I was reading biographies of men like you know, the people that you hear, men and women, actually. Jonathan Edwards, Amy Carmichael, George Whitfield, um, or just a host of them. And it seemed like to me that the more that I read, the more I struggled because I recognized that there was a profound difference between the life that they were living and the life that I knew. There was something that they knew about the Christian life and the faith that seemed to run deep. There was a knowledge of God that they seemed to have that was profound, that made their life distinct and different. And it had a substance to it. I remember uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin wrote uh, wrote extensively about going to watch George Whitfield preach just in these open fields. And when George Whitfield in the 1700s would preach, he would preach to up to 60,000 people. And th that's quite a task. That's, imagine going and standing in an Angel Stadium and just letting it rip, you know, without a mic. You know, that's, that's quite a task. And Benjamin Franklin would go out and listen to this guy because he was so compelled by George Whitfield. He found him to be such a distinct, compelling person 
that he would go hear this guy time and time again. And so even Benjamin Franklin said there's something about that guy that's unique. He's compelling. He's distinct. He's different. He's a different kind of human who lives life from a different place. And the more people I read, the more I was challenged. And the more that I recognized that my life in no kind of way resembled their lives. And so I quickly went into that place that, uh, you know, in Pilgrim's Progress, it's called the Slough of Despondency. That's where I went. And I just sort of built a house there. Uh, went, and that place for me was a dark place. And I went there for two years, almost a year and a half. At 25, I'd resigned the ministry. I thought I was done. Uh, I was moving furniture. Not a great profession. Um, and I had just gone to Washington. I was on my way home. I was listening to a conversation that someone gave me about the gospel. And for the first time in my life, I realized that there was something wrong with me at a really deep level. There was a sculptor, uh, in, uh, there was a sculptor named Giacometti who at one point in his life tried to sculpt his soul. And if you were to take some tinfoil and crumple it up and, and make a little man out of it and spray paint it black, he felt like, that is my soul. And at that point in my life, I realized that that's who I had become. I just got a glimpse of who I was. And it overwhelmed me. On that trip, I had been given a brand new Bible. It was a Geneva study Bible of the year they all came out. And it was in the box. It was brand new. And I tossed it out the window of my rig. And the reason I tossed it out, I got to seminary for a year and a half, so I grew up in Christian schools. Sunday school had done all of it, but I felt like the Bible had no answer for me. I felt, I felt despair. I felt condemned. I felt that I had been stained at such a deep level that I didn't know what to do, and I had no answers, though I sort of prized myself on understanding the Bible. So I checked it out the window. I later went and got it, and now my Bible's all jacked up. But uh, uh, I still have that Bible. I thrashed the cover. But I quickly ended up pulling over on that. I was on 395. Anybody know what 395 takes you? It's not an exciting road. It's just the desert. And it takes you from L.A. to, like, Mammoth if you're going to go skiing. And there's no other reason to be on that road, actually. And I was coming, and I just pulled over at that point and walked out into the middle of the desert. And I prayed. I prayed, God, help. Because I felt like a person who had been so violated. You hear stories of people who have been violated. And they feel like the stain of that violation has gotten so deep in them that they want to go take a shower, but they can't remove that, that deep, penetrating sense of being violated. And I felt like something inside of me was so deep, so penetrating, that it had gotten such a, a hold on me. It was defining who I was, and I couldn't do anything about it. And so my prayer at that point, as I laid there on my face in the desert, was God help me. And God did. And God reminded me of two passages, one out of Ephesians 1, one out of Hebrews 10. He said, Rick, you've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, and that's a, that blood penetrates, number one, and you are accepted in the beloved. And for the first time in my life, I understood that God rejoiced over me, though I could still feel my sin. And, and it changed everything about me. And it was part, part of that experience and the questions and all that I wrestled through Ten years later, if you go through our story, my wife went into the same pit. She followed me, and she just left that pit six years ago. And it was actually longer for her. I ended up resigning my ministry again. 
we moved out to Fresno and we stayed on a property for almost, ended up being a year, and every day we would talk through this place that she was in. So where I had gone, she ended up going. And we both ended up coming to the same place. Um, those are things that we're gonna talk about, but it was out of that story, and out of the awareness of our stain, and the issues that we struggled with, that took us to Long Beach to begin a ministry to a lot of people that we knew were in despair, people who were in just depression, who had become cynical, who had tried Christianity, quote-unquote, and who found it coming up short, who didn't know where to go. We said, look, we, I, we know that place. Let's go to those people. And that's sort of what we're going to talk about today. This whole idea of what it means to be sane. We're going to look at it from one angle today, then we're going to look at it from another angle to Thursday. So one angle today, and then we're going to look at it really from a completely different angle on Thursday. And I want to start by looking at Jeremiah chapter 18, if you want to turn there. one verse, talk about it for a moment, then I'm going to have you guys break up. Jeremiah 18, verse 6. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in that potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. I think there's two things I think to notice from that verse. One of them is it gets into something we're going to talk about here in a little while. That what God does in the gospel is shape us. What God does in Christ through the gospel is that he shapes us like a potter shapes clay. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to come back to that. But the other thing I want you to notice about it, and I think it's true of human nature, is that one of the ways that we're sort of described in God's word is as clay. Uh, even in 2 Corinthians 4, you know, we're described as jars of clay, right? And because of that, what I think, one of the things I think that's true of all human beings, it's not just Christians, it's, it's part of the human condition, is that you and I are shapeable as people. And there's some interchangeable language that I want to use, and it's the language of being stained, the language of being shaped, and the language of being influenced. Because I think it all goes to the same place. When we talk about being stained, we're talking about being shaped. When we talk about being shaped, we're talking about being influenced. And as human beings, we all have the propensity to be shaped. It's innate, it's like you see a lump of clay, and what that clay was meant for is to be shaped. And part of being a human means that you are moldable. You are shapeable influence can be exerted on you, you can be stained. And I want to talk about the various ways that that happens. Uh, or, and or the various hands, think of yourself as a cup. And that there's a lot of hands that work on that cup to shape who you become from one level. 
Or, from another perspective, think about the river. Some of you are going to go river rafting. Anybody going to go tomorrow? Well, hardly anybody was going in the last class. There's a lot of people in this one. If you were to go in the river, you're going to find rock. In fact, it's called river rock. If you go to Home Depot or Lowe's and buy river rock, what does it look like? It's smooth, right? Why? It's the water, right? It's that perpetual, constant, unavoidable, shaping, influencing influence of the water on the rock, right? And there's something about life that's that way, whereas you and I live as people, there is this constant, unavoidable, shaping influence, like a river, that happens to us. And I think it comes from all, just a multiple sort of aspects of life. But I want to start by focusing on one of them, and that is the way that you and I are influenced by our family and our peers and our culture. Somehow part of who you and I are becoming has been shaped by those, those arenas. You're becoming, you're sort of a product at one level of your peers, of your family, and of your culture. It's shaping who you are. Sam probably remembers this. In the 70s and the 80s, people used to go to Colorado, almost Detroit. Not Detroit, Denver. <laughs> Denver. No one would go to Detroit for this. No one goes to Detroit. Does anybody go to Detroit for any reason? Uh, except for to buy a cheap house, right? A cheap house. But in the 70s and the 80s, everybody was going to Denver, Colorado, of all places. Why there, I don't know. But they were going there because they were starting to recognize that at some level, you are the product of your environment. That all these people had shaped who they were and they were going there to find themselves. The sort of, they began to strip away the layers of all these influence and these shaping, uh, these shaping influences in their life and to find out at the bottom of that or at the center of that who they were because they were recognizing this. And so they all went to Denver to do this. Uh, I don't think that's happening anymore. But what I want us to do is to spend a little bit of time right now and to recognize what are the ways that you are shaped both positively and negatively by your parents and by your peers and by your culture. Who are you today that's a product of those influences? In some kind of way, you are a product of your parents, of your peers, and of your culture. So let's break up in our groups, in your, in your teams, your groups, and spend a few minutes talking about the way those influences help to shape who you are today. Rick, can you repeat that? Your parents? Your peers, your friends, and your and the culture. Okay, Haley, so let's just briefly throw out some things. You don't need to raise your hand just when someone else has been talking. What are some of the ways that you notice both positively and negatively that you've been influenced or shaped by your peers, your parents, or the culture? So anybody, or maybe raise a hand. The models in um, magazines, they visually mastered photos. And at least for me, it's like, why, it's like, I want to look like that girl, but you know you can't. So it really, culture is telling you what's valuable, what's beautiful, who you should be. The culture is trying to tell you your identity. Even. Aaron? 
Well, yeah, uh, a lot of the culture, our culture is all about how you feel and you should really act on that. And you gotta be right to act on that. Like, kind of just how you feel. It's yeah. all about you. It's not about, like, other people. So. Right. shape your values positive and negative yeah. music like catchy tunes will get stuck in your head and then they're not always the best songs and then by the time you know the words but if you really think you don't really think about what they're saying but you imagine it like oh yeah that's fun like that's okay to do because everybody else is listening to it and it's obviously a popular song you know so. we, we can embrace you know, so much of this music is so demeaning to women, too. Mm -hmm. So demeaning to women. Just completely, the, the, the complete devaluation of women. Yeah, and like Garrett said, yeah. music nowadays is it's all about me. Or it's about me, right. So some other stuff. I think one positive effect that American culture has had on us is finding quarters, right? I mean, in a lot, you go to a lot of other cultures, and it's mostly about, like, France, for example, it's all about fun and doing whatever you want for yourself and stuff. American culture is one of the cultures that will go in and try to help the people in need. I think that's one positive effect that it has to give us the idea of right and wrong and um, fighting for what is right no matter what you are. That's good. There's something good to be said about some of the values in our culture. Anybody else want to say anything? The point being, I mean, we could talk about this, and a lot was said, and you only began to talk about it. At one level, we're shaped. And we're influenced, and we all know that. We can't stop it. It's, again, like the rock in the stream. You can't stop being shaped by the environment that you're in. The Bible talks about that and says, though, though that's the case, it's not the case that you're merely a product of your environment. So your environment shapes you, but you weren't born into this world just a blank slate to be written on by your environment and or the people or the peers or the parents that are around you. But they're part of what does write on that. But Jesus says, actually, there's something deeper, something far deeper that shapes who you are, the person you're becoming, the way that you're going to live, and who you're going to be. And I want us to talk about that. It's found in Matthew 15. So if you would, turn to Matthew 15. Matthew 15, we're going to read verses 10 to 20. And Jesus called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? 
Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's telling us about human nature. He's saying the way that you act, the way that you behave, the way that you are going to live your life and who you're becoming is emerging out of some place deep within you. It's your heart. That your heart has more to do with who you're becoming, your character, your values, than really anything else. And that we're a people, humankind, human beings, we are a people who live out of the heart. It's not just Christians that live out of the heart, and Christians, non-Christians don't. All people do. We, as people, we live out of the heart. And that's what Jesus is saying. Who you are is being formed by what's coming out of the heart. You know, if you're walking and you've got a cup of, of water and you bump the person with the cup of water and it spills out, what spills out of the cup is the very thing that's in the cup. That's actually what we were talking about last night. What's in your heart is the stuff that's going to spill out of your heart. Jesus says, as a person, the way that you are, the way that I made you, is that you are a person who lives out of the heart. And there's a great illustration of this taking place right now just in the, the Gulf of Mexico. When you go into the Gulf, you see immense problems, right? What's the problem there? oil spill. And the oil spill is killing fish, it's killing dolphins, it's killing, uh, it's destroying coastline, it's killing people's uh, uh, businesses, you know, fishermen are losing their ability to fish. It's, we don't even know the long-term devastating effects of this Gulf of Mexico oil disaster, right? But the problem is not just what you see on the surface. If you were to fly over and you were to look at the Louisiana coast or the Florida coast, you see some effects of something else, right? What's really causing the problem in the Gulf of Mexico is something that resides deep. It's lurking down deep within. It's something you can't see. It's something that, but something that's producing all this death. Uh, Every week I spend a part of my week at a coffee shop, and I walk into this coffee shop, and it's actually what made me think about this, and they have these big plasma tubes, and this one coffee shop keeps this one TV station turned to, uh, turned to a TV station, CNN, and on CNN you can turn into the live feed of the oil gusher, and the only thing that they show on this TV all morning long, I think it's all day long, in this cafe, is this oil gushing out of this thing. That's, that's what you get to watch if you go there. And it's like, ah. And it just reminds you as you watch this thing gushing and gushing and gushing, the amount of devastation that's just moment by moment being produced in this gulf. And Jesus says, there's something in you that's very similar to that gushing well. You're a person that has a well, and it's deep down in you. And very often what's coming out of that, what's lurking down there is very similar. It's shameful, 
It's dark. It's stuff we want to hide. It might be disgusting and foul and producing death. And Jesus says that that place inside of you that's bringing all that out is called your heart. But what you see is on the surface. You see the lust that it produces. You see the various kinds of sin and the problems in your character and the problems in your values and the way that you relate to these people and the way that you relate to those. But he said that's actually not the problem. The problem is not on the surface. The problem is what's coming out of that well. And that problem is sin. And that's a, that's a term that we toss around a lot. But it's hard sometimes for us to get our hands around because we're so familiar with it that I think it becomes elusive at times. And one of the things about sin is that sin is something that we recognize so well in other people. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7. He says, look, we have this ability to notice little specks of sin in other people. I was talking about this last class, and I was thinking about those monkeys. You watch the National Geographic program, where they get in, you know, and they're doing like this, and they find a little thing. He says, as human beings, you have that propensity um, <laughs> to find, you know, to, to notice the unnoticeable in other people. You have the ability to sort of perceive, to, to, to look down and even to the, the values, uh, the motivations of others, and to pull out these little things and say, do you see this sin? And not only do we have a tendency to notice the sin in others, we actually celebrate it and we're entertained by it. When you walk into a supermarket and you get in line and you see all those magazines, what are those magazines celebrating? Sin of other people. Look at the way this person's life is a complete failure. Oh, I'll buy that magazine. Look at the way that this gal, you know, this guy's going out on this gal and he's now turning to these, this gal. Oh, I want that. And so not only do we see sin in other people, we're actually entertained by it. It's, it's a, it's an, it's an amazing thing about who we are that sin actually entertains us and other people. But what Jesus says, the problem is that in our own life, the things that are glaring and the things that are gushing, the things that just crave to be noticed, the things that are wrong with us, he says, those are like a plank in your eye. And somehow we can't see those things. And I think part of what it means to to follow Jesus and to become mature in our faith is to begin to expose those planks in our lives. Is to begin to bear, to just to pay attention to what's coming up out of our well. There's a guy that I like to listen to. His, his name is Soup John Stevens. Anybody here heard of him? He's big in our church. He wrote a song called John Wayne. Anybody know that song? One person. It's a song about John Wayne Gacy. Who knows who John Wayne Gacy is? Tell me about John Wayne Gacy. He was a serial killer. John Wayne Gacy was a serial killer, killed 33 people, buried 27 of them under his house, stuck six of them in a river. Sue John wrote a song about John Wayne Gacy, but I think this song says more about who we are than it says about what we already know about John Wayne Gacy. So I want you to listen to this. Especially the end of the song.
was a drinker and his mother cried in bed folding john wayne's t-shirt when the swing set hit his head the neighbors they adored him for his humor Underneath the house there Find the few living things Riding fast in their sleep all day Twenty-seven people Even more, they were boys With their cars, summer jobs Oh my God Dressed up like a clown for them With his face painted white and red And on his best behavior In a dark room on the bed He kissed them all He killed ten thousand people With a slight of his hand running far running fast to the bed he took off all their clothes for them he put a cloth on their lips quiet hands quiet kiss on the In my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. So what's he saying? John G Wayne Gacy is heinous, right? We see that, but then what does he go on to say? In my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath my floorboards and you'll find stuff that's dark and shameful and foul. You'll find my deep, dark well coming out of my heart. It's producing all kinds of evil. That's what Jesus gets into in the Sermon on the Mount. So there's deep things in our hearts. And at the end of the day, we're all the same. We have stuff gushing out of a deep place in our heart. And what I'm really encouraging you to do this week is to begin to allow this, that well to be exposed. And how important it is, not only that that well become exposed, but then that two things happen. And number one, that we, stop, that we start getting away from what I'm going to call sin management. And that is trying to deal with the problem of the well by just dealing with things at a surface level. In other words, if you go into the Gulf, you see, you'll see the boats up there skimming the, the, the oil on the surface. There have been people who cut their hair and they've made these little booms of hair. 
and you see these people well-meaning, they're going down to the coast and they're taking the little six foot long boom of hair and they're laying it down and they're trying to absorb some water, I mean some oil. And what's the problem with that? The, the well is just gushing. It's like right now, five, in fact, I think they had to pull the cap off. It's even worse for the moment. Uh, like five million uh, gallons a day or something like that. And yet we're standing there, you know, with our little six foot booms trying to soak up a little bit of oil. Well, it's like we have a toothbrush and we're on our boat and we're leaning over the side of the boat trying to scrub the film off our boat. When they're down deep beneath that, lurking down deep within us is something that's gushing. With a prop, you know, with a profound problem, and sin management is like scrubbing the boat of our life with a toothbrush. It just gets nowhere. It's you see the futile efforts of trying to clean up that oil spill, and our efforts of trying to deal with our sin are very similar. And so we, I want to discourage you from sin management. Just try to manage your sin, to try to keep it all contained in a certain area of your life, or to try to hide it. You know. Uh, but to go beneath that. Jesus promised to, in the gospel that he was the one who was going to come. And not just clean up the surface of our life. He promised to be the God who was going to come and change wells. In John 7, Jesus says, For all those who come to me, out of their innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. That's his promise. His promise to you is profound. He says, I promise to come and change you at the deepest, most fundamental, profound level of your, of your being so that you become a distinct, completely other type of person. I don't come and cap the well. I come and I change the well. You still are a person who lives out of your heart, but I'm going to change the values of your heart. I'm going to change the orientation of your heart. And the reason I do it is because my sin, I mean, my blood, has the power to penetrate and to stain you at such a deep level that it transforms you. So that out of your life can produce something new and something that's life-giving and something that actually begins to influence and affect others for the kingdom of God, which we're going to talk about tomorrow. My concern for you is, as, as a young group of people from my own church, is that if the gospel for you never gets down to that level, if you don't learn how to live out of the heart, if the gospel for you never gets down to that level, that you would become like this. so many of the people who show up at my church at 27, 28, 29, 30, having tried Christianity but really never have. Because they never let Jesus and the gospel get down to the deepest levels of who they are and change their heart. They tried sin management, they realized it doesn't work. They tried to hide and suppress oil, it doesn't work. The only thing that cleans that in the end, Jesus says, is well transformation. So then only I'm in the business of doing that. Other things may hold out the promise of doing it. In the end, only I change it well. And I know we're over time, and so let me pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, I pray that as we move forward and talk about this whole business of being stained, of being shaped by sin, that, Lord, we would really understand the great work you've done in Jesus to change our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.